0: How many have traveled to Pikes Peak? Gone up to the top at Pikes Peak? Few of you, number of you, have. Uh, one of the unique things uh, of that mountain in Colorado is that they have a timed race to see who can go up to the peak the fastest, and it's called Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. Uh, the record now stands; it was just broke this last year, under eight minutes. It was actually an electric car that. that that one has gone the fastest. But they start at mile marker seven, 12.42 miles, 156 turns. They climb over 4,700 feet and grades average 7.2. Now it used to consist of gravel. And now I guess it's tarred all the way. But uh, many years ago, Deanna and I, took a trip to Colorado and we were visiting some friends there. We decided to drive up onto Pikes Peak. And I'll tell you this, I hated it. Um, m- m- much of it was gravel while well, we were driving up there and the top section had no guardrails. And a friend of mine who was in the back seat was just kind of egging me on going, "Can we need to get closer to the edge. We need a better view. And, you know, and I'm trying to go in the other lane to stay off close to, away from the edge at that. And, and a confession time from that, is that from that point on, I hate driving in the mountains, especially where there's no guardrails. There's kind of a phobia here, and I don't even like driving on high bridges anymore, and I almost break out in a sweat just thinking about it. So I will never drive Pikes Peak again, I I will tell you that. I'm going to stay at the bottom. Uh, And and growing up, I had no fear of heights, you know, so that really wasn't an issue. But now... I want roads that are safe, not, you know, flat, and lots of guardrails. Now, I want to show you a, a quick clip. Uh, there's no uh, words to it because some of the words aren't repeatable. So as they're making commentary, this is a, just a compilation, just a minute or so, of some of the crashes during that road race. Uh, okay, so let's play that clip here. But here is the deal: when no guardrails are in place, the potential for serious crashes go up exponentially. See, guardrails on a mountain are meant to protect us, and when people are careless, driving too fast without guardrails, the potential is there for serious injury, serious crashes. Now. I want to connect that to our text today. And it's a text that's not all that fun to preach. I'll tell you that. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, if you were here the last couple weeks these verses actually feels like a little bit of a contradiction. For about two weeks here, the previous two weeks, I've been talking about how Paul is pushing back at these teachers that they had been saying that Jesus isn't enough that you need to earn your way toward approval toward God. And one of the things that they were doing was putting in rules and structures and say, if you perform this and don't do this and do that, then you can become spiritually elite. And I want to show you how Paul responds to it. Look at verse, in chapter 2, verse 21. Here's what they were saying. Do not handle... Do not taste, do not touch. These have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, that word flesh we focused on last week. If you weren't here, you might want to listen to it. It's the inward desires that wants the world to be centered about us. It's really that the self-love, the consuming self-love that we want to be kind of on the the king of the mountain, the queen of the mountain. But Paul is saying this, in order to fight the temptations of the flesh and, and as well as the world and Satan, trying to put rules in place have no fundamental value. It just doesn't work. And last week we answered that question, well, when temptation comes, what do we do? Rules don't work, consequences don't work, so what should we do? Well, actually, Paul answers that in verses 1 of 2 of chapter 3. Look how it reads. If then, or you could put because of, you've been raised with Christ, seek to things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So Paul is saying here, you want to win the battle of temptation from the flesh, Satan, the world? You win the battle by seeking that which is above. And Christ is above. So it's seeking him. It's looking upward, focusing on him. It what allows us to to give us freedom to begin to deal with the issues in our lives and to grow toward him. See, harsh harsh consequences just don't work. But today, we we come to a text, and I want to put again verse 5 on the screen here. Look how it reads. "'Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry.'" So doesn't this feel, though, like Paul has just put in a series of rules? A bunch of do-nots, do-nots. So how do we connect the two here? Well, recognize something again, that the teachers, those false teachers, were saying this. In order to be worthy of God, you got to do these things things. It's toward a certain destination. But what Paul is doing in verses 1 and 4, he's saying this, you are in Christ. God has already worked in you. You don't earn anything more to become an elite Christian. That's not the issue at all. He's saying, because your identity in Christ, there's something different now. There's something different And I want to put a statement on the screen so you realize really what it is. Looking toward Christ leads to a love of Christ that empowers us, gives us power to live a life that pleases God. See, when salvation comes, as we look upward, he gives us freedom to live a life that's pleasing to God, pursuing Jesus And all of a sudden, we realize that as we do that, it makes a difference in the way we live in this world. Looking to know Jesus creates a new identity. But Paul also realizes here, as he's addressing this church and as it's applied to us here, you know, thousands of years later, that the reality of sin still exists. Just because we come to faith doesn't mean that we're done dealing with sin, It impacts people. It impacts this world. And he knows we need to deal with it. So here's where I want to jump in. And we're going to dig after this issue. But the first time, let me just fill in that first bullet point um, in your notes here. And really the summary of it: this. Looking upward as we gaze to Christ, it gives us the power to deal with sin in our lives. Now, there is sin in this world again. And every one who claims to follow Christ must deal with it. See, Jesus wants our lives different. He he wants us to be declaring his righteousness as we live in a world. Matter of fact, starting in verses four and five here today, and even going on over the next, really the next four or five weeks, it's gonna be pointing to how we live differently because we are in Christ. Christ. And as we look even here in our lives, because Christ is our life, it should make a difference in, our, in the church that we're at, in terms of home, in our homes, in our marriages, at work, in every relationship horizontally, it should make a difference in our lives. So let me give you the second point just to fill that in as well this morning. Key point number two. Dealing with sin provides guardrails on our journey to know and follow Christ. When we deal with sin, when we don't overlook it, it's like putting these guardrails up that keeps us from going over the side of the cliff, the mountain, in the ditch. See, this passage is not about obtaining some higher level of spirituality at all. See, it's dealing, dealing with sin it embodies both somebody who's young in their faith, but it also embodies those that are older in their faith and more mature as well. It applies to all categories of where we're at in our journey with Christ. But Paul wants to deal with this. He wants us to stay out of the ditch, to not wreck our journey as we walk toward Christ. And I, I think he would say this, if we're stuck in the ditch, You know, I think of that motorcycle there. At some point, we got to get back up on the road and head down the head, head up that mountain to find Jesus. But there's a parallel passage. I want to show you this as well in terms of dealing with sin. Look at Hebrews 12, very pointed here. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. And by the way, that everything is really the summary of that is baggage in our lives that may or may not be sinful. It's really not the sin stuff as well. But look, keep going. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Sin is an anchor. It keeps us from looking up, running toward Christ. It stifles movement in building our identity of being in Christ. And Paul wants us to be at war with sin. So the world, the flesh, Satan, wants nothing more than to keep throwing temptations at us. And they're saying they don't want us to look toward Jesus. But that's where the answer is. So we race upward. We race really to the top of the mountain. Why? Because Jesus is there. But you know, in that Pikes Peak race there, the moment those guys slid off on the side of the road, they're out of the race. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply totally for us today, but it stops, it holds them back from finishing. So we need to understand this, that sin and sometimes even unrealized sin that we don't even know. I I, I think of James 4 that we look into, we're supposed to gaze into the word to reveal the things that sometimes we want to turn away. But sin holds us back. It limits our movement toward Christ. So let me jump into the text here. Look at verse five again on the screen. You notice there, put to death, therefore, that fourth word, therefore. Why does he have that? Some versions actually start the sentence there, therefore. You might, if you have that, uh, depending on the version. But it's connecting back to verses one and four. One and four. Our identity is in Christ now. Set your mind and your hearts on things above look to Jesus. Therefore, deal with sin. Deal with it. But Paul knows it's not automatic. See, being in Christ, there's still this battle. Do we gaze upward or do we we still consume to the end, to ourselves? So it's not just a understanding that we we decide one day there's this gaze that we have to go upward but there is the capacity where some christians as well can get trapped in sin and in the flesh And understand this, the consequences will make, really, our lives, and they'll look no different than that of the world. No difference. But our lives need to be declaring Jesus. And that's why Paul wants transformation in this group of people. But because of being in Christ, folks, we now have freedom that we did not have before. We can gaze upward, See Paul is telling this church though, do not live like those who don't have Christ. We need to recognize one thing, there's a significant difference of those that do not have Christ and those do. The ones that do not are trapped in their sin. They really are stuck. There is no freedom. There is no freedom for them. It's why they need the gospel. That's why in one sense we don't look at them and worry about or judge them. that's not the point at all. They need Jesus in order to get unstuck. That's our goal in giving them Jesus. but because of being in, because we are in Christ, folks, do you know that you are free to do it differently? That as you gaze up, you don't have to be trapped by sin. Therefore, put To death. And then he lists a number of sins. And and these aren't all inclusive. Recognize that. But catch this again. Paul is assuming. That this is the characteristics of the world. As he lists these five things. He's assuming that this is what the world is caught in. They're trapped here. But put to death what the world is trapped in. You catch the freedom with that. Now here's one of the challenges over the years. I find that a lot of Christians do not like talking about specific sins. We don't really like it. But here's where if, if you step back and you look and you read your Bible a bit, you recognize that the Paul, the other writers Even Jesus, they don't have a problem talking about sin. They don't have a problem calling out some things that are sin. It's why these words are written for us today. But in our culture, some don't want to talk about it. And here's what I think some Christians default to well, you know, we live under grace, we don't want to judge. We need to be loving. You know, it's not loving telling people that what they're participating in is sin. That's not loving. Matter of fact, I think it's almost become virtuous for us not to talk about sin at times. And, but realize something. That Paul and all of the authors and what Jesus was doing, he he was asking for the followers of Christ to move away from sin. And it's not about judging. It's actually, and there really is not a condemnation there, but it's about protecting people. It's the guardrails. We want to help other people stay out of the ditch because it's holding back their movement toward Christ. So we want to walk alongside of people. And at times we need to be bold. But it is hard for us in our culture to say, this is sin. And it's a challenge for us. But put to death. See, sin is not some nice puppy that we play with and hold and coddle it. See, do we feel the weight, though, of of this idea that Paul's doing Because we've died with Christ, because we've been buried with him, we're raised now with him, we're hidden with him in God. It's why, because of those things, why we are to be diligent in obeying this directive. And it is a directive. It's it's an imperative the way it's written. It's a command. Put to death. Put to death. Now, some, I think, even take it a little farther. They do this. Well, I'm hidden in Christ. I'm in Christ now. I don't need to be overly concerned with what happens and the temptations that I bump into every day. You know, I got the life insurance policy. I'm good to go. Christ has done it all for us. So stop trying to put rules on me. But here, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul comes along and he says, no, put to death. See, recognizing we have a bond with Christ and it gives us again the ability and the power to take up the battle with sin. He's saying, kill it. See, this is not passive. This is waging war like Ephesians 6 in the armor of God. I wish I could take the time to go there. I just can't. But when we give energy, when we set our minds above, when we focus on Christ, the power of the Spirit is given to us to wage war against sin. But sin is forever active. It takes no vacations. The flesh and the world and Satan keep generating temptation after temptation. If we think temptation is going to stop, you got got something else to learn here. Because it won't. They keep, it keeps coming. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That word earthly, are, are, basically, are those things that are done that the world does not see as a problem. It's no big deal. And Paul goes, no, strip it away. Now, in a couple of weeks, I'll warn you, actually, it's more of an encouragement, but. Put on, we're gonna talk about putting on some things in a new area. But see here, it's do whatever's necessary to eliminate this from your life. No compromise, deal with it radically. But let me tie this back to Pike's Peak here. What is Paul doing by naming these five areas, these five sins? And it's functionally this. He's putting up guardrails that keeps us on the road. See, these specific sins are beyond the guardrails. They're down over the bank. They're down the mountain. And he's saying, don't go over the rail. Stay out of the ditch or there will be consequences. But here's what we have a world out there that's that's telling God, God, we don't care. We don't want guardrails in our lives. We get the right to define what is sin and what is not sin, what's okay and what's not okay. So here's where I need to make a statement and connect it back to the Garden of Eden. Look at, let me put this on the screen. Only God, only God has the right to determine what behavior and attitudes are good or not good. When Adam and A- Eve claimed their independence and said, we can be like God and we're going to embrace that idea. We get to decide what it's right and what's wrong. Folks, only God decides it. And you go, why? Because he's God. Because he is the utmost highest supreme being who decides what is good and what is evil. But because of that, there's these... Guardrails of five expressions of sin here. I want to put up verse five again on the screen. Look at the list sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, that first word, sexual immorality, you notice you got to catch something here is that for the believer, Paul assumes that a Christian can exercise control over this area and over these desires. And that actually is contrary to what the world teaches us today. The world tells us this. this, Those desires, they're good. Give in. You were made that way. Be happy. See, even if God calls it wrong, they're still saying, be yourself, embrace your longings. It's all about love. See, the world says above all else, you can't judge anybody or condemn anybody for these urges, these desires. Matter of fact, you can be fulfilled in them. But see, folks, that word, sexual immorality, it's the Greek word pornea. And it's where we get the word pornography. But in matter of fact, I got to point something out here. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says this, flee it very strong again as he addresses another church. But he says this in that passage, the very practice of this is that those who have an unrepenting heart toward it are not worthy for the kingdom of God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, people who actively celebrate these sins, God says no to the kingdom of heaven. And it's the reason, you, you cut that in verse 6, it's the reason that the wrath of God and, is coming on those people. But people don't like to hear that, and I understand that. People don't like the idea of saying no to things. But see, sexual immorality refers to any and every kind of illegitimate sexual activity outside of marriage. The expression of sexuality is reserved for marriage, period. And I recognize that's not politically correct. See, God is saying that there's certain expressions and activities that are illegitimate. So sex outside of marriage between a man and woman is illegitimate. And that falls into those guidelines of sexual immorality. But sexual immorality is really an outward expression here of behavior. Recognize this, the re- the next four are more hidden in the heart. That word impurity. First you know, Thessalonians 4 speaks of it. And, and even this illegitimate passions, those encompass the mind. It, it's the thinking as to what we dwell on. One author said it this way, those sins it's the thoughts that stains the soul and I, I, I think that's really good. It's why Jesus says this: when you look at a person another lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. See that's the degree of it. illegitimate desires it's it's twists of thinking, especially in the sexuality world. And, and we recognize in that it's addictive. And we understand that even the, the secular world and in, in studies that go out there in terms of pornography and such, they recognize it has influence on people profoundly. And yet the world is saying, celebrate it. You can put no rules or boundaries in place. But then there's that desire, this evil desire. What's that all about? Where God comes and says, no. Well, understand this. It's a little bit wider. It's widening it. It's beyond just sexual activity. It has to do with any type of thing where we want to destroy. We want to harm. We want to get even with people. See, it's again, it's out of the heart. We want things that are illegitimate, and things to happen to people that are illegitimate. And yet they're made in the image of God. Evil desires. He's saying no. But then he comes to that last one. In verse 5. Covetousness. with Which is idolatry. See, Paul here is connecting sin with the things that we desire. Things that we desire that we want. See, this isn't sex. This is stuff, things. And you go, okay, why is it on the list here? Why is it on the list? And I think at times some Christians really don't like it to be in the same category as those other four qualities. This is a lesser one, God, isn't it? And God said, no, it's not at all. Why? Why? Why does he list this here? It's because of this. The stuff actually replaces God. It replaces God. See, worshiping God is a big deal. Now, I'm not talking about just the music that we sing. It's with our very lives that he calls us to worship him. To make him utmost supreme in our lives. And the call there is that when things, anything gets in the way of giving our worship and devotion to him, he says it becomes an idol and it becomes idolatry. And understand that this can flow in many different areas. I came up with, let me show you a definition where I came across of this. I really like this. Covetousness. By the way, you could put greed. Maybe your, your Bible has greed as well. But look at how he states this. Covetousness, greed is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. See, this sin is very much less tangible, more subtle, I think, much more even deceiving in many ways. See, the problem, we don't always understand even our own motivations because of the flesh. See, why do we long for that new shiny car? Why? You ever paused and thought about it? Where does that come from? The desire to have more than what we currently have where we're not satisfied with what we have. And we begin to hoard stuff, all the goodies, all the toys. Folks, covetousness is a serious sin that Paul is equating in the same category. But when does it cross a line? When does it become idolatry? I want to show you the warning that actually Jesus directed at his 12 disciples. Look at what reads Luke 12, 15. You see the seriousness of this. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So how does one know that our life consists about our possessions? When does it move to that point? How do we gauge it? How do we measure it? And and recognize there's no simple formula. That's the challenge for us. Um, But let me put some questions on the screen that maybe apply to it. Let me ask you this question right now. Are you content right now? As you just are in life right now, Would you say that there's a spirit of contentedness in your life? Let me throw another one up here. Can you be content without the stuff? A little harder question, isn't it? But I think maybe this is the one that speaks the, the strongest to it. What gives you the greatest joy and satisfaction in life? Is it Christ? Or is it the stuff? See, the flesh pulls us to find pleasure in the stuff, in the new toy. See, pleasure of getting that, but pleasure recognized at that point, if that's our greatest purpose, it begins to equal idolatry. We start to long for the other things that will satisfy the soul. And at that point, we are worshiping those other things. But in our our culture, I think our culture is a little unique in that it actually can go beyond possessions. I really do. See, I think this, uh, I, I think for some, it's about the right experience. The fun, the adrenaline rushes. And even for some, I think it overflows into the relational world. We can actually covet and desire another person's relationship or family matter of fact, I think this: we can covet and want the desire, the perfect kids, the perfect kids. And we feel good, that that sense of satisfaction and pleasure and, and really feeling good about ourselves, when all of a sudden our kids succeed at this level, oh, I feel good. See, if that's the focus, we're desiring that. And not up. See, our kids' success might be elevating our ego, and it whispers and it twists our identity of what Jesus wants for us. In me, in me. See, we put our confidence and hope on promised things and stuff and whatever money and effort can give us. And at that point, we have bought into the lie. And when we believe the lie that we need that, when we, need, when we have to have that, what we're saying is we don't believe that meaning and purpose can be found in Christ and Christ alone. It comes back to that question, where is meaning and purpose in our lives? Is it gonna be Jesus or is it going to be stuff? Is it gonna be Jesus and the kingdom of God or is it gonna be all of these Periphery things over here, side things that get us distracted in that. If we buy into that, into that lie, and when we believe that we have to have that, what we're saying is that God is not enough. God is not enough. If that's the longing of our soul, we're saying, God, you cannot really give it to us. I don't trust you. At that point, we're guilty of idolatry. In effect, what we're doing is we're bowing our knees to another master. We're being captive to a different Lord that's not Christ. And Paul comes along, put to death that and again, as Christians, I think we do this. We look at the sexual world and we go, amen, amen. But to this world, it's a little trickier, isn't it, for us as we walk in this world? I gotta end here. Look at verse six. I gotta speak to this a second. Look how it goes. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. very pointed. There's consequences to sin. Now here's where I want to connect this to Romans chapter one, where it speaks to this as well. Look at verse 18 in Romans one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't like the idea that God has at the end that there's gonna be a wrath of God, a judgment of God that he's bringing down to this world. We can wanna go, oh, it's not fair. But folks, the world deserves it. We deserve it. Without the grace of Jesus Christ, we still deserve it. But the wrath is gonna come and people will deserve it and there will be judgment. And yet at the day of judgment, they're going to be thumbing their nose at God and going, I don't care. I don't care. But I want you to look at the underlined in that passage of Romans 118. Look what they do. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. I don't know if you've ever caught that before. What's happening there? Both passively, because of unrighteousness, both passively and it can be actively, they are actually helping people keep from meeting Jesus. They don't want other people in their world to move toward Christ. They don't want people to move toward a church. They don't want people to be engaged with Jesus. So they're actively suppressing the truth. But do we realize this, when one is in Christ and if we're trapped in those sins and we're in the ditch at the time, we are actually accomplices of the world in suppressing the truth. Our our lights aren't shining. It's why Paul says, put the death. Why he wants lives that are different, and again, these next few weeks, we'll see that even in multiple areas. But he's saying, "I want lives that are different, that are representing Jesus when where Jesus becomes attractive for all of those that might be turning and saying, "This world isn't working for me." So we put to death sin. We stay away from recklessness. We stay away from driving on roads without any guardrails. But see, this actually is a war, folks. There's a war on sin here that Paul knows that we're in. You know, one commentator said this. where well, I really like this. He said, there is no ceasefire in our war with sin. There are no demilitarized zones to which we can flee. Flesh, Satan, and the world... They don't take a sabbatical. They don't take a sabbatical. It's why gazing upward is so important. A new desire replaces those desires. Christ is replaced. The kingdom, ministry, other centeredness is replaced by those desires. So we look up, we gaze at him. I'm gonna ask the elders to come on up here. And I think it's appropriate in one sense that this table represents the work that God has done in our lives. Do we recognize that because that we're buried, we're dead, that we're in Christ, that God has set us free and this table represents the freedom that we have to gaze upward. Guys, would you just hand out the bread? It represents a broken body. He died for us and we have freedom. So I'd ask that you would just hold the elements and that as we're gonna participate together, but if you know Christ is your savior, I want you, and even if you're you're struggling with life a bit, just bow before him and say, God, help me today. Start something, start a new journey today. So I would encourage you just to ponder the work that he's done. You are in Christ. He's given you new freedom.